Amen. Praise the Lord. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Galatians chapter 3. We'll begin there this evening. I want to talk to you on the basis for faith. Galatians chapter 3, um, maybe while you're turning there, I should uh, catch up a little bit on what's going on in this letter that Paul writes to the churches in uh, the region of Galatia. Galatia is not a city, it's a region. Um, Paul, on his first missionary journey, encounters Jews that have come from Jerusalem that are trying to mess up and, and um, well, really destroy the churches that he's established and the ones that he's planted. Uh, these Jews have come from uh, Jerusalem with a message for the people wherever Paul was preaching that faith in Jesus is good, but you still have to keep the law of Moses. And so Paul is writing back to the church, churches in Galatia, trying to overcome that and reason with them and show them why that's erroneous teaching and, and uh, they should give up trying to keep the law altogether. Verse 5 in Galatians chapter 3, Paul is making his case after he's identified um, his knowledge of what they've been doing and what the, the Jews have encouraged them to do. And so here's his argument. Verse 5, he says, He therefore that ministers to you the Spirit, talking about people being saved and filled with the Holy Ghost, and worketh miracles among you. In other words, he's saying, God, you're familiar with God's miracles. You're familiar with people that have uh, been saved and people that have been filled with the Holy Ghost. You're part of the group that were saved and filled with the Holy Ghost by, the, by God himself. A free gift through the free gift of mankind to mankind of Jesus' sacrifice. He said, how did that happen? How did these miracles occur? How did this change in nature, spiritual nature occur? He said, was it done among you by the works of the law? Did you get saved on the works of the law? Did you get filled with the Holy Ghost by the works of the law? Or by the hearing of faith? Now, folks, notice verse 5. He's saying, here's how God does miracles. Here's how God does miracles, even by the hearing of faith. Notice he tells us what kind of faith in verse 6. He said, even as Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. What I want you to see here is that the same thing, the same principle of faith that you were saved by will produce a miracle in your body. The same faith that you received the baptism of the Holy Ghost by will perform a miracle in your body. Now, it's not faith as you and I might define it. Faith is not something... Effective faith, I should say, successful faith, is not something where you and I decide how we want it to go. It's not performed according to our idea of things. It's performed according to the example that the Bible gives us of Abraham's faith. So what's going to work a miracle in your body? The same kind of faith as Abraham had. You operating in the same kind of faith that Abraham had. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, I'm going to read from the King James, beginning in verse 17. Here's Paul's description, as given to him by the Holy Ghost, of the faith of Abraham, the same faith that produces miracles for us. As it is written, here's what God said to Abraham, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him, the margin of my Bible says, like unto him, 
whom he believed. In other words, it's saying that Abraham operated and acted on the earth in his life. In this case, for his son to be born, for Isaac to be born, the miracle of Isaac's birth. He said, the Bible tells us that he imitated God. He imitated God to bring about that miracle. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew, in, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 11, verse 22, he said, have faith in God. Other translations say, have, faith, have the faith of God. One translation says, have the God kind of faith. Well, what kind of faith would God have if not the God kind of faith? What kind of faith did he create the worlds with if not the God kind of faith? See, folks, there are a lot of things out there. There are many different kinds of what people call faith. But the Bible gives you the pattern. The Bible gives you the pattern and gives you an example of Abraham as successful faith. Faith that brings results successfully. So it says, before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. In other words, Abraham had to learn to operate in the God kind of faith, and the God kind of faith always calls things that be not as though they were. It always calls things that be not as though they were. Who against hope, he had no natural hope, he had no circumstance to put his faith in, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. When God said, I have made thee the father of nations, father of many nations, he didn't have any children. So there was no physical evidence to prove what God said to be true. But he had a desire to become the father of many nations. And so he had to learn how to operate in the God kind of faith to obtain it. Who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken. So shall thy seed be. You remember when God showed Abraham the stars of the sky? He said, that's how many your seed will be. If you could number them, which you can't. He said, your seed will be on the earth like the stars in the sky. When it comes to numbers. That's the promise that Abraham's believing in. So shall thy seed be. That's all he's got. He doesn't have any physical evidence. He doesn't have any evidence in his body. He doesn't have anybody pulling for him or on his side. All he's got is God saying, your seed will be like the stars of the sky. And being not weak in faith, verse 19, and being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Now let me explain this a little bit. I think this is a point that we need to make and certainly something we need to apply to our own situations. Notice it says, he considered not his own body now dead. He's not denying the age of his flesh. He's not refuting the age on his birth certificate, if people had them back then. He knows that his body has ceased to function sexually. He knows Sarah's body has ceased to function sexually too. But where it says, being not weak in faith, believing in other words, in God's promise, so shall thy seed be as the stars of the sky. He considered not his own body, now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Here's what that really means. It means he did not see his age or Sarah's age or the way that their bodies had aged and, and were or were not working sexually. He did not consider any of those to be barriers that would keep God's word from coming to pass. 
See, that's why the Bible gives Abraham as a type of faith for us to follow, an example of faith. It calls him the father of faith. He knew how old he was. He knew how old Sarah was. He knew that they were past childbearing years or age. He knew what their bodies did and did not do anymore. And he considered none of that to be a barrier to God's promise being realized. Verse 20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Let me read this to you from the American Standard Version. I consider reading the whole passage from American Standard, but I really don't like the whole thing. But verse 20, they really hit, on the, hit the nail on the head. Romans chapter 4, verse 20. Yet, looking under the promise of God, he wavered not through unbelief, but waxed strong through faith, giving glory to God. It tells us what he looked at. It tells us in verse 19 what he didn't look at. And he tells us in verse 20 what he did look at. Verse 19 says he considered not his own body. He's not looking at their bodies as proof of God's word. He didn't consider those circumstances, those physical realities in his flesh and in the flesh of his wife to be barriers to prevent the word of God from coming to pass. Well, if he's not looking at their bodies... If he's not looking at the physical condition of their bodies as evidence or proof of what God said, what's he looking at? He's looking at that promise God made him when he took him outside and showed him the stars in the sky. He's looking at that promise when God said concerning the number of stars in the sky, so shall thy seed be. So shall thy seed be. Folks, the whole purpose of Abraham being the father of faith and the example of faith for us to follow the whole purpose is simply that he had to keep his eyes on God's word. That's the whole reason Abraham is the father of faith. That's the successful faith that works. That's the effective faith that brings miracle results. When you keep your eyes on the word alone. When you keep your eyes on the word alone. Looking under the promise of God. He wavered not or staggered not through unbelief. But was strong in faith, giving glory to God, verse 21, and being fully persuaded that what he, God, had promised, he, God, was able also to perform. Again, it shows us that his confidence in God, performing his word, making his seed number as the stars of the sky, his confidence in God was not affected in one way whatsoever, any way whatsoever, by the conditions of their bodies. Now, folks, let me, let's stop and think about that for a minute. Abraham's body and Abraham's wife, Sarah's body, is not functioning sexually anymore because of the age of the, their flesh. What if, now I don't know how Abraham's body responded. I don't know if he started getting stronger and stronger and all of a sudden he reached the point where they were strong enough to have children again or if it was something that delayed and he saw no difference, he saw no change in his body whatsoever, and then all of a sudden one day they were in a position to have a child. I'm not sure how it worked, but one thing I know, even if his body did start getting stronger and stronger, even if it was a process that he began to realize and recognize as taking place in his flesh, that's not what he put his faith in. It's not what he put his confidence in. 
He kept his eyes on the promise. He kept his eyes on what God said, so shall thy seed be. He kept his eyes on that picture. And I'm sure he probably went out every night and looked at the stars to remind himself, God said my seed would be like that. Well, you know what happened. There was a miracle result. That miracle resulted in Isaac being born. That miracle resulted in the child, a son, just like God said he would give him, give Abraham. But now what's he going to do? He's raising that child. He's putting everything into Isaac that he can as far as knowledge of God and experience with God. I'm sure Abraham recounted stories of God appearing to him and talking to him and making covenant promises with him over and over and over again. I sure would have if that was my son. I have no doubt whatsoever that he's implanted in Isaac the understanding of the covenant that God made with Abraham himself and the fact that that covenant blessing and promises would extend to his children, to Isaac and his children. I have no doubt that that took place. But then God comes along and tells him something that has the potential to knock the wind out of him. God tells Abraham, when Isaac is probably a teenager, late teenager perhaps, God tells Abraham to take Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice. Now, what's the significance of that? I, I, it hadn't been a long time that I really liked that story. I didn't like it as a kid. I didn't like it as a young adult, not having understood what was going on. But now it makes perfect sense. God had to see if Abraham had shifted his faith from the promises of God that caused Isaac to be born to Isaac himself. See, this is the problem. I hate to use that term. But here's, here's something that sometimes happens. Sometimes we believe God for a promise or believe a promise of God and bring him, it brings about results. And then we start putting our faith in the promise. God told Israel about this in Deuteronomy. God said through Moses, that when Israel came into the promised land and began to build good houses and have crops and increase and all this other kind of stuff, he said, you may remember, he told Israel to beware that they don't forget that it was God that gave them the power to get wealth. What does that mean? It means there's a tendency, a natural tendency. And since it's a natural tendency, it would be in Abraham's case as well. It would be an opportunity that would present itself to Abraham just like it did to the children of Israel concerning the promised land. It's easy when you start seeing the results, even the results of your own faith. It's easy to start putting your faith in the circumstances and think that things are going well or things are still in the right place with God and even think sometimes that you're believing God, still believing God because you see the results. God is giving Abraham an opportunity to prove whether or not he shifted his faith to his son. Whether or not he's put his faith in Isaac and Isaac's future instead of the word. And Abraham passes with flying colors. The angel has to stop his hand to keep him from going through the sacrifice of Isaac. And now the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 
And you can also see it in the Genesis account with some of the things that Abraham said to the people that were traveling with them to get to the mountain, Mount Moriah. You can see that Abraham had such faith in God and God's original promise, so shall thy seed be, that he received Isaac even as raised from the dead if it took it. He knew that the promise that God had made to him, to Abraham, and the covenant that he had made with him was to be done and carried out through Isaac and his descendants. So Abraham thinks this through. Now, we don't have any record of how it went or anything like that, so I'm just having to use my imagination on some of this, but it has to be, the end result has to be what, what really took place. Abraham comes to the place where he says, Isaac is the way that God said that he would bless my seed. So if I offer Isaac as a sacrifice, if I take his life, then God's going to have to raise him from the dead to fulfill the promise that he made to him before. Hebrews chapter 11 says, he received Isaac in a figure as raised from the dead. And what that means is Abraham saw it through. He saw it in his own mind's eye. He saw it as the, the only possible outcome. If Isaac dies, then God will have to raise him from the dead because God said, through Isaac, so shall thy seed be. So God takes the prop out from under Abraham's face and finds out that Abraham wasn't, was never propped on Isaac to begin with. His faith was still in his word. Now turn with me over to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, we see that Abraham's success was a result of keeping his attention focused on the word. Looking under the word, he staggered not through unbelief, but was strong in faith. Let's start reading in verse 4, Numbers chapter 21, verse 4. Talking about the children of Israel in the wilderness. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass or go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Notice what happens when people get discouraged. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. Now the light bread he's talking about is manna. The thing that kept them alive, now they're complaining about it. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people of Israel died. This is one of those cases where the translators, King James translators, translated into a causative sense that which in the original Hebrew is in a permissive tense. There are other places in the scripture where it talks about and recounts God leading the children of Israel into the wilderness or through the wilderness. And it says that God led them through a wilderness where there were fiery serpents. So it's not like serpents and poisonous snakes just all of a sudden got manufactured. But instead, they went through a land where the fiery serpents were prevalent, but they never had any problem with them up till now. God has protected them from those fiery serpents up until this point. So they spake against God and against Moses. Here they make their complaints, and the serpents came into the camp, and much of the people of Israel died. The ones that were bitten died. Therefore, the people came to Moses. Now, notice verse 7. Verse 7 is a real important part of the story. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. They knew their, sin was, their own sin was the problem. We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. 
Pray unto the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. In other words, we want to get back under that protection. Pray the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, folks, there's always a way of escape. We just have to find out what it is. And it's not always the same thing, even when you face the same circumstance multiple times. But there's always a way. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, notice this phrase, when he looketh upon it shall live. Now, folks, this is available to everyone, not just a select few. God doesn't say, well, I'm thinning out the herd here. So some of these people can be healed, but not all of them. It says, everyone that looketh upon it shall live. Now, Jesus, in John chapter 3, in connection with Jesus saying, for God so loved the world, John three sixteen, that everybody loves so much. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth on him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life or eternal life. Jesus says in context, John 3, 16, that he must be, as Moses lifted up the serpent of brass in the wilderness, so also also shall the Son of Man be lifted up from the earth. In other words, Jesus says this serpent of brass that God had Moses make is a type of him. Now, why is it a serpent of brass? Because on the cross, Jesus was made to be sin for us. This is not the Lamb of God. This is not the picture of the Lamb of God being sacrificed. This is the picture of Jesus becoming sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. And notice the connection with healing. What Jesus says is him. What Jesus says that his own actions concerning the crucifixion to be the fulfillment of this illustration or this type in the Old Testament. Notice that it brings healing to the people, to everyone that looks at it. To everyone that looks at it. Now this word look doesn't mean a casual glance. It means to fix with an intent gaze. Now we can guess at some things that are going on. One thing that seems interesting to me about this story is that the emphasis is on people looking at the brass serpent. People keeping their eyes on the brass serpent. Could it be? I don't know for sure. I'm sure you wouldn't know either. But could it be that while the snakes were crawling around at their feet, they're supposed to keep their eyes on the serpent of brass. They're supposed to keep their eyes on the type of Jesus. Well, that would certainly make sense because looking upon it The intensity of the gaze identified as looking upon this brass serpent is identified. Well, having snakes crawl around your feet, poisonous snakes crawl around your feet, that might distract you. Just like looking at the things of the world might distract us now from looking at the type of Jesus and what Jesus obtained for us. So Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Again, just like Abraham kept his focus on, he looked at the promise of God and became strong in faith, 
Here it's talking about keeping your eyes on what Jesus did on the cross to bring healing to the body. What you look at is of utmost importance. Israel didn't look at other people that had been healed from the snake bites. They were supposed to keep their attention on the word. They were supposed to, the word Jesus, who was the word made flesh, is what I mean. They had to keep their attention. They had to keep looking at God's means of escape. Well, the Bible says in Psalm 107, verse 20, that God sent his word and healed us. So that's our means of escape. One other story I want to draw your attention to. We all remember the story of Jonah and the fish. You remember how Jonah ran away from God, wound up on a ship going the other direction? The people figured out, people on board the ship figured out that the storms and everything that was going on was because of Jonah. Jonah said, you guys don't have a chance to survive unless you throw me over. So they did. They didn't want to to begin with. They, didn't, they weren't sure they wouldn't be angering God if they did. But finally, the storm got so bad that they yielded to what Jonah said. And so Jonah winds up in the belly of a fish. In the belly of a fish, Jonah says, those that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. Now, folks, Jonah can't see anything but fish. He can't see anything but fish. But he says that the fish, which is the only thing he sees and can see, is a lying vanity. Is a lying vanity. And he says, they that observe, look at, focus their attention on lying vanities, forsake their own mercy. Well, lying vanities could be anything. They could be conditions of sickness or disease that are in our bodies. Lying vanities could be any physical circumstance in any area of faith that contradicts the word. Now think about what God had to do. The story of Jonah fascinates me. Think about what God had to do for Jonah in the belly of the fish. He had to create a watertight environment for Jonah to survive. He had to create an airtight environment for Jonah to survive. And God had to create an atmosphere inside the fish for Jonah to be able to live. I guess that's all. God had to change the makeup of Jonah and or the fish for Jonah to survive. And Jonah doesn't have any windows to look out and see what's going on around him. So when Jonah turns to the Lord, and this again staggers me, how could these guys in the Old Testament believe in the impossible to such a degree where it seems like we have to talk ourselves into believing for little stuff? I mean, these Old Testament prophets, these guys that walked with God in the Old Testament, nothing was impossible. They knew that God would do anything. There was no impossibility, no matter what they faced, no matter how long they faced it, no matter how severe it was. They were willing to jump on board almost instantly for the miraculous. And they don't have what we have. We've got a better covenant established on better promises. Now, when Jonah cries out unto the Lord, 
And certainly he's crying out for deliverance because if he's not believing for God to deliver him, then the fish is not a lying vanity. The only way the fish could be a lying vanity is if he's believing to get out. You see my point? So what happens after he claims his deliverance? Well, like I said, he didn't have a window. He couldn't see outside the fish. He didn't know where the fish was going. He probably didn't know whether the fish was going up or down, north or south, east or west. He didn't know where that fish was going. The Bible says God commanded the fish to vomit Jonah up on the land. But the Bible really doesn't tell us how long he was in the belly of the fish. I don't see any indication in the scripture whatsoever about how long he was in the fish. Or maybe a better way to say it is, what point during his time in the fish did he claim his deliverance? And once he claimed his deliverance, he doesn't know what the fish is doing. He doesn't know where the fish is going. Fish just swim. He can't tell where, what's going on. So what does he do? He offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving while he's still in the middle of the fish. Let me tell you what he didn't believe. He didn't believe God put him in that fish to kill him. If God wanted to kill him, and God doesn't kill people, but if God wanted to do away with him, all they had to do is leave him on board the ship. The ship was about to sink because he was there, and he could have died with everybody else. Jonah knew that. He knew, no matter how difficult the circumstance, no matter how nasty this thing was when he's in the belly of the fish, he knew this was a means of God's deliverance. He recognized it as God's deliverance. Now, I know there are times when we wish there would be something else or something more than just the word of God to stand on. But it's God's means of deliverance. We get in uncomfortable situations very often where we're believing God for healing or believing him for financial help or whatever the case might be. And things seem to get worse than better. And a lot of people give up. A lot of people start complaining. And they forsake their own mercies. They observe lying vanities and forsake their own mercy. And it just seems to me that Jonah would be in a perfect position to complain. Now, Lord, I knew I ran from you. I knew you wanted me to go to Nineveh, and I don't want those people to be spared. They're Israel's enemies. They should die, just like you said that they would if they didn't repent. So I know I disobeyed you. But the belly of a fish? Really? Not a piece of driftwood somewhere for me to hang on to and be carried by the tide into the shore? Maybe a raft would be too much to ask for, but the belly of a fish? But Jonah recognized it as the hand of God to deliver him. In effect, he's saying, I'm not going to stay in this fish. This is a lying vanity. The faith of these Old Testament guys staggers me. And they ought to be surprised at us, not the other way around. So Jonah gets vomited out on the land, which is quite an entrance into a major city like Nineveh. I'm sure his story went viral in a hurry. And he preached, 
told the judgment of God was coming upon Nineveh if they didn't repent. They did repent. And the blessings of God began to flow. All because Jonah looked at the right thing. He refused to look at the wrong thing. In each one of these cases, in each one of these instances, what they looked at made the difference. What they looked at turned sure defeat into miracle victory. What you look at is everything. What you look at is key to any miracle that we could hope to receive from God and victory over every circumstance. What you look at is everything. Now in Proverbs chapter 4, we'll close with this. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20 through verse 22. The Holy Ghost instructs us. My son, attend unto my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from before your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. Verse 22. For they are life unto those that find them. And health to all their flesh. One of the elements. One of the factors. In finding the word of God. Finding the victory that God has promised to us. The victory that he's obtained for us. Through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus. Is not letting the word depart from before your eyes. In other words. What you look at. What you look at is everything. It's everything. And when you're believing God. Even if your symptoms seem to subside. Don't shift your faith over into your symptoms. Don't put your faith on the fact that things are getting better. You can rejoice that things are getting better, but it can't be a basis for your faith. The Word of God and only the Word of God is ever a sure foundation or a sure basis for our faith. Don't look away from the Word no matter what. Sometimes it seems that when symptoms begin to relent or recede, That's when people do in the area of healing what Moses warned them against doing in the area of finances and prosperity. Don't forget it's God that gave you the power to get wealth. Don't forget it's God and God's word that's changing the circumstances and the symptoms in your body. Don't forget it's God. He sent his word and healed you. It's not just the fact that you're improving that makes the difference. And folks, I've seen the devil work both sides of this street. I've seen numerous times where people are prayed for to be healed, where they extend their faith to receive healing from God, and things immediately get worse. And some people will come back and say, well, I I felt so good when we prayed. I just thought that God had healed me. But now the doctor says things are worse. Well, you can readily see that they put their faith in feeling good. And so now that they don't feel as good as they did when they prayed... They've determined that God didn't heal them after all. But the other side of this coin, the other side of the street that the devil works, is when people are prayed for and their circumstances or their symptoms begin to recede. They begin to diminish. Then they come back, and I've seen this time and time and time again. They come back and they say, oh, Pastor Mike, our prayer worked. I feel so much better than I did the other day. And I'll always ask them, how are you going to feel like tomorrow? Or what are you going to believe if you feel worse tomorrow? 
I've had people argue with me and say, oh, no, I won't feel worse tomorrow. I can tell God's heard and answered our prayer. I can just feel it. Well, you know what happens. Tomorrow turns out to be a really bad day, and they have to get on the phone and find out why God didn't really heal them. But if you put your faith in the Word, He sent His Word and healed us and delivered us from our destructions. If you put your faith in the Word, then no matter what happens to your feelings, you can be just like Abraham and operate in the faith that produces miracles. You can look under the promise of God, wax strong in faith because your attention is on the Word and not propped up by any feeling that, that comes that's good or bad because God's Word never changes. God's Word never changes. Folks, what I'm getting at is this. Wouldn't it be silly for Abraham to turn loose of his faith, fail to hold fast to his confession because he had a pain in his body? Wouldn't it have been foolish for him to say, you know, my hips started bothering me ever since God appeared and talked to me about having a son. And since my hip is hurt, I guess that means God's word's not true after all. Wouldn't that have been silly? His pain would have had nothing to do with having children. His pain would have had no bearing on it whatsoever. Well, if pain doesn't have any bearing on one promise of God, then why would pain have any bearing on every promise of God? Do you understand what I'm saying? Pains or physical circumstances of any type, aches, pains, fevers, none of that has anything to do with the truth of God's word concerning healing. Now, the devil wants you to think it does. The devil wants you to think that aches and pains and fevers are proof that healing is not at work in your body. But it has no bearing on it whatsoever. So if a pain in your body doesn't keep you from believing for finances, then why should a pain in your body keep you from believing in healing? Why should it be any indicator whatsoever concerning any of the promises of God when pains have no bearing on anything at all? They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. Don't look at your circumstances. Don't look at your symptoms. Don't even look at things that are improving as proof. I'm not saying you shouldn't rejoice in them. I'm rejoicing in mine. But it's not what my faith is based on. My faith is based on the word of God. Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with the stripes we're healed. And that's true whether I feel good tomorrow or feel bad tomorrow. That's true whether you wake up and have a good day or have a bad day. That's true whether your body is racked with pain or you're sailing down through life feeling great. It's God's word that is the basis for our faith in every circumstance and in every situation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the privilege that we have to operate in the same faith of Abraham. We look under your word, Lord, and your word alone is a solid foundation a sure foundation, a solid basis for our faith to take hold of this healing that Jesus purchased with the stripes on his back. Thank you, Father, for revealing the truth of your word to us. We will not observe lying vanities, but instead we'll look under your word. We'll keep our eyes upon you, Jesus, and what you did for us 
even as the serpent of brass was lifted in the wilderness by Moses. Our faith is in you, Father. Our confidence is in your word. And that word never changes. So we declare we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We declare that we're healed from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. There is no thing, no sickness, no disease, no symptom, nor attack that can change the truth of the word. And the truth of the word is, by the stripes of Jesus, we were healed. We thank you for our healing, Father. We offer you the sacrifice of praise, even as Jonah did, because we trust in you. We love you, Father. And we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 Let's keep our faith on God's word. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.